Tao Lin. Tao Lin. Tao Lin. No, no, no. I just like saying his name. By the way, are you here? I'm here. Here. Now. You. Yes, you are. And here we are together in a new year. It's 2023. And we've got this year's very first episode of The Paul Leslie Hour. So the first guest of the year is, you guessed it, Tao Lin, author of Prose and Poetry. Tao Lin's most recent book is Leave Society, published in 2021. He also founded the independent press Moomoo House in 2008. Legendary writer Brett Easton Ellis called Tao Lin the most interesting prose stylist of his generation. Whoa, we got something here. We really need to get about... 30 more subscribers on our YouTube channel so we can hit a milestone or, you know, a kilometer stone. It's free, it's fast, and easy to subscribe. So don't forget, because it helps us a lot. And thank you. Now it's time to begin the show. We hope you enjoy it. We also hope you have a great day and a great year, for that matter. We wish you infinite Joy. Now, let's listen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of 2023. I'm very honored to be joined by Tao Lin. He's the author of 10 books, the most recent Leave Society, his novel released in 2021. He's also the founder and editor of Moomoo House. So, Tao Lin, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you for making the time for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. So, just in the interest of uh, full disclosure, it's shortly before midnight here on the East Coast, but you are in Hawaii. Yeah, I moved to Hawaii in 2020, and it's only 6.30 p.m. here. (laughs) How do you like Hawaii? I like it a lot. I've tried some various places in Hawaii. At first, I lived on the island of Oahu, which is where Honolulu is. And I moved to different places there. Then I moved to the big island where I'm at now. It's kind of the most remote island. I like it a lot. I used to live in New York City. So it's a big change, but I feel a lot healthier here. There's so much less air pollution, electromagnetic radiation, and less people and cars. Would you say Hawaii is more conducive to being a writer? For me, it is, yeah, because I've been writing about healing myself. I've been writing about getting away from places like New York City and healing myself physically and also mentally. So for me, it is, especially since I'm already pretty late into my career and I'm not in, 
I haven't been trying to like meet editors and agents and make connections. So being isolated here has been really good for my writing. Hmm. Well, on the note of, I guess, how you're feeling, healing, that kind of thing, we're at the last few days of 2022. How are you feeling these days? I'm feeling better than I've ever felt. Not because of the state of the world, but just because of my personal changes. Hmm. I've been making lots of advances in diet that have helped me a lot. Because throughout my life, I've suffered from so many physical ailments. Right. And I've gradually cured them. But two of the ones that were most persistent were eczema, which is chronic itchiness. And my chronic itchiness was centered around my crotch for some reason, which was really disrupting. And I also had migraines, really bad headaches every few weeks. Hmm. And recently, just four months ago, stopped eating vegetables. This might sound crazy to people, but stopping eating vegetables healed both of those problems, eczema and migraines. It's because vegetables aren't as good as people think, apparently. They contain a lot of anti-nutrients, which were damaging my gut. So I had a leaky gut and toxins and undigested food were constantly crossing my gut barrier into my circulation and giving me itchiness and headaches. So for that person out there that's watching this and they're thinking, okay, I'm watching this interview with Tao Lin. He's telling me, don't eat vegetables. Uh, but you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to turn off that idea completely. I'm going to try it. Let's give this a shot. What would you say to that person who's thinking, you know, I'm going to try this for a while. What would you say the best initial advice would be? Well, there's tons of info on this online, especially in the past five years, people have started doing what's called the carnivore diet, where they eat only meat. And basically eating only meat is like the ultimate elimination diet. Because a lot of people with autoimmune disorders, which I also had, that gave me back pain. A lot of people with autoimmune disorders have to work on finding out which foods they're allergic to or which foods give them problems. And at first, they cut out wheat because it has gluten. Well, at first they cut out processed foods and then wheat and dairy and then nuts and seeds and then finally vegetables. And it's helped a lot of people and vegetables. Our ancestors used to only eat, almost only eat meat. Our ancestors from like Three million years ago until agriculture developed like 12,000 years ago. And they turned to plants only when they were starving. That 
evolutionary perspective I found really compelling because when our ancestors ate plants, they also selected them very carefully out of the tens of thousands of species, they would choose certain ones that were the least toxic. And then they would prepare them carefully sprouting them or fermenting them or soaking or cooking them. But since agriculture developed, it's kind of been a free for all for civilized people trying to figure out which plants are okay to eat. And these days, people's guts are so damaged that we're even less able to process plant foods, I think, which is why the carnivore diet has been so effective. I'm actually on what's called the animal-based diet. I eat meat, fruit, meat and fruit. Fruit is less irritating to guts because plants produce fruit, especially for animals to eat, so they put less anti-nutrients in them. And if people want to look into anti-nutrients, the biggest one might be something called oxalates, which is in many foods that people view as superfoods like almonds, turmeric, spinach, chard, cacao, all things I used to eat a ton of. And then there's another one called lectins, which is in a lot of grains and nuts and seeds and gluten, which everyone has heard of is a lectin. Mm. So maybe that could interest some people. It was hard to get me to realize that vegetables aren't as good as I thought they were partly because I was a vegetarian and a vegan for five years. And I just absorbed all this positive information about plants. And now I think plants are better used as medicine instead of as food, which is how our ancestors used them. This is so interesting. Uh, you know, I didn't expect us to go down this this road, but I'm glad we did. It's, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it occurs to me, writers... And journalists, they are people who pursue, they pursue their curiosities. Mm -hmm. I mean, this very thing that, you know, from you going from being a vegetarian, vegan, now on this carnivore diet, in some ways you could say it, you know, it had to have been a curiosity. Uh, would you say you've always been a naturally curious person? Yeah, I think so. Because I grew up having not that many friends and being viewed as kind of weird. And I took that weirdness into my writing. Like my first, just all my books, I like leaned into the weirdness. So I grew comfortable with exploring things that the mainstream views as weird or views as a conspiracy theory. And I've been exploring stuff like that for like five years already. And it was with all that background that I encountered the carnivore diet. So I was open to it. But I feel like most 
journalists and writers, they're curious, but then they reach a point where their curiosity clashes with the mainstream view. And then a lot of the times, if they're working for like the New York Times, then their curiosity will get just disappear because there's no way for them to move forward to write about certain topics for, say, the Wall Street Journal or NPR or other mainstream media outlets. But I've been able to avoid that just because of how I've I think I've been able to avoid that partly because in middle school, I listened to a lot of punk music and they criticized corporations and mass media a lot. And I took that with me throughout my career. And now I find it exciting to uncover societal lies and write about them, even though most of the literary world will view me as a idiotic conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Do you consider that term, uh, you know, it, when you see something, well, I don't know, let's say it's on Twitter and somebody says, oh, tell Lynn, he's one of those conspiracy theorists. Is it something, does it, does it bother you at all? Or is it almost a badge of honor? It bothers me a little. It's frustrating but I understand it totally. The term conspiracy theory was popularized by the CIA when people started questioning the theories people had about who killed JFK. And the CIA had this program called Operation, Operation something, I forget what it is, where they basically installed editors at all the major newspapers around the world. So it totally makes sense that there's this term conspiracy theory out there that people use to dismiss anyone who has theories that aren't the mainstream part of the mainstream narrative. And I have a journalism degree from New York University. So I have insight from the other side. In journalism school, we were just taught that the New York Times prints all the news that's fit to print as their motto goes. And yeah, that's what everyone's taught. So it makes sense to me, but it is a little irritating. Hmm. Yeah. And would you say that the biggest reason it's irritating is it could prevent somebody from reading or listening to what you have to say? They just see that label and immediately, oh, Taolin, conspiracy theorist. I don't want to read his book now. Is mm -hmm. that it? That's part of the irritation. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just frustrating to see people being deceived. Yeah, very much. But I myself have been deceived. Like it's been a long process to reach where I am now. So I totally understand it. And 
when I'm confronted with that sort of thing, I just try to remember that my goal is to try to convince people gradually with like little snippets of information, making them cast doubt on what they think they know instead of just coming out and saying something that will alienate them immediately. So it's a challenge that I find meaningful and worthy to work on. But it's such an interesting time that we're in, at least from my perspective, it seems like people would rather fit in. They would rather be like most people within any particular narrative they would rather be like that than to be right. Like mm. which, which one is correct? Correct doesn't matter as much anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of value to fitting in. And I've been able to avoid that just because of how shy I've been throughout my life. So I'm kind of used to not fitting in and not needing the approval of other people. Yeah. Well, for somebody who is a, a non-mainstream person or just somebody who, uh, I don't know, if you're just like we've been talking about, naturally curious, there's so much right now to think about. There's so much to read about, research you know, analyze over and over. What has been preoccupying your thoughts the most these days? Besides the self-healing stuff, I've also been working on a science fiction novel ah. that incorporates a lot of stuff I've learned that, that clashes with the mainstream view of physics and cosmology. For example, I've learned that the universe probably isn't 13.8 billion years, that it's at least trillions of years old and possibly infinitely old. And people can read about this in the book, The Big Bang Never Happened by Eric Lerner. Learning this was a, was a big shock. Like the other day I was meditating and I just thought about this a bit, that the universe isn't only 14 billion years old, but possibly like hundreds of trillions of years old. And I felt amazed and I felt just a welling up of wonder. And then I've also learned that Einstein might have been wrong about everything. <laughs> when I read about this stuff, it was a big shock too, just because of how Einstein is viewed as like the smartest person ever. But apparently, Nikola Tesla, who many people respect, he also, in addition to these other more modern researchers I've encountered, he also thought that Einstein was totally wrong and on the wrong track. And from Einstein is where we think that the speed of light 
that light has a speed limit and that nothing can go faster than light. And this impedes a lot of science fiction because writers of science fiction always have to come up with ways for people to get to different planets because under Einstein's theories, it would take around four years traveling at the speed of light just to get to the nearest star system. But from other researchers, I've learned that, no, that's wrong. Things can go faster than the speed of light. Hmm. So when will that book, do you imagine, will be out? I'm working on the science fiction book at the same time as the healing book, which is called Self Heal. It could come out in like 2016 or 26, 2026, maybe. But I'm also working on a third book at the same time on human history, where I try to tell a truer version of human history than we've been taught. And the two main lies that we've learned about human history, I think, are that one, that our thread of history is the only one that civilization gradually developed in a linear fashion since agriculture developed 12,000 years ago. But actually, people have been finding that there is a global cataclysm 12,000 years ago that might have destroyed one or more advanced civilizations. So there might have been a whole nother thread of history with its own novels and inventions and its own Jesus and Christianity that was wiped out before our thread began. And the second lie we're taught is that civilization began 6,000 years ago in Egypt and Sumer. Actually, it seems like it began thousands of years earlier in modern day Turkey. There's this settlement that used to exist called Chatao Hulk. And the part that, of this that is interesting is that after agriculture developed, For 6,000 years, humans were peaceful. There were no weapons of war, no defense fortifications, and none of the art depicted war. And people seem to have worshipped nature as a female deity for 6,000 years. But in textbooks, we're taught that civilization began with Egypt and Sumer, at a time when people were already male-dominated and warlike. And this view of history was most popularly conveyed in a recent book called Sapiens that was really popular. Barack Obama, Mark Zuckerberg, and Bill Gates all recommended it. And it's a bleak view of history because it says that humans have always been sexist 
and prone to war. But it seems like actually humans have always been what Brian Eisler calls a partnership species. And that the fall into what she calls domination is a recent thing that happened. With this view of history, there's more hope that we can return to the peaceful ways of before. And it also explains why society is so messed up now. It's because we've fallen into this mode of being where conflict is the norm. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, speaking of, of conflict, I don't know why when you said conflict immediately, I thought of Twitter. What are your thoughts about the changes in Twitter since Elon Musk has taken over? I love the changes. It's been a big, it's been really hardening to me seeing Elon take over and then start releasing all these Twitter files. There's been like 10 different releases and they just reveal how the government has been interfering with elections and censoring people and banning people and banning anyone who disagrees with the CDC's views on COVID. And all these things seem horrible for society. So I've been really happy to see Elon doing everything he's doing. And sometimes I'll search what the mainstream is saying about all this. And it's, it's really bleak. Like they don't, they're not covering these Twitter files. They're just attacking Elon. And then I see my friends who only follow mainstream media, they view Elon as a troll just because they're getting all their information from the New York Times. So it's it's a crazy time, but yeah. What do you think about Elon? Well, I mean, I think if you, if you're of a mindset that you shouldn't change your mind about anything, if you're of the mindset that uh, your mind should be locked in place to whatever you've always thought, then Elon Musk is a really scary person because mm -hmm. he's going to allow, it's kind of like, I, I mean, I guess the short answer would be, I like the changes because I don't mind seeing, and it's opening me up more to looking and seeing what someone who disagrees with me about anything, A, B, C, D, whatever. It's opening me up more to seeing, well, let's see, what does this guy think? Whereas before, I actually think that Twitter has become, ironically, it seems like it's less hostile than it used to be. And maybe I only felt that way just because it was very clear that there was one group, there was one uh, nucleus that was controlling Twitter. And now it just feels like, oh, you know, there's going to be disagreements everywhere. Um, it's made me really think about the human, uh, at least the current human inclination to not change your mind, to, to stay fixed and to, you know, to not consider, you know, any 
any viewpoint that threatens what you already think or you think you know. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Twitter did seem less conflict ridden before. Probably just because they banned everyone who had a different opinion. Right. Something like 12,000 doctors and scientists were banned. So people on Twitter only heard one side of the COVID story, for example. But now mainstream media, I've noticed, hasn't focused on that aspect, the banning of doctors and scientists. They focused on how certain accounts that used to be banned are back certain accounts that just like i don't remember what but they're like humor accounts or something and they're making fun of these accounts but they're totally ignoring the doctors and scientists that were banned right yeah and that's pretty astonishing you know when you people have these ideas about who was banned the only people who are banned are radicals and they don't they don't make the connection that no there are medical doctors there are people who have tons and tons and tons of certifications and acclaim for what they've done and they have been removed and it's also interesting because i think you know like i was looking on the mumu house twitter the the publisher that you you've been you founded and you're the editor of and recently there was an author on there and there was like an attempt to somebody said, you know, is this what you want on Moomoo House? Uh, you know, t- take this off, th- this attempt to cancel whatever. Uh, has that been something that have you dealt with that in terms of, of people as a publisher yourself, where people have tried to get certain works removed or tried to get you to ban certain people who wrote something? That was the only time ever that I remember. And it was kind of funny seeing this attitude just enter my world a little bit. And they wanted me to disassociate myself with Robert McCready. Right. And I had published a story by Robert called Gloria Naylor's Island. Right. And... Gloria Naylor is this author who won the National Book Award for her first book, which was also made into a TV series by Oprah. And she had a very successful career. But then she started getting what is called gang stalked. And she wrote a book about it, about the government targeting her with harassment, increasing amounts of harassment until they were using microwaves to implant thoughts into her head to make her seem crazy. And her regular publisher didn't publish it. She had to go with a small publisher. And none of the mainstream media covered the book. There was one interview with NPR that was kind of skeptical of her. And 
the New York Times has articles on gang stalking, viewing it as a psychosomatic issue, blaming the people being targeted. So I recommended this book on Twitter and Robert McCready read it. And then he communicated with me and he said he was going to go to Gloria Naylor's island where she lived during the gang stalking to investigate. And I told him if he wrote about it, I would publish it. And he went there and investigated and wrote a 5,000 word, a great story about it. And I yeah. published it. Yeah, I did read the story. I, I thought the story was really compelling and, and entertaining. Anybody can check that out there. It's Mumu House. It's M-U-U-M-U-U, right? This is a mm -hmm. Yeah. Mumuhouse.com. Mm-hmm. Well, I always try to deliver as much as I can. And uh, I actually have a question from Robert McCready. Mm -hmm. nice. so this is a question he would like for me to ask you. Do you write to entertain or for some other reason? For some other reason, I think. I feel like there's been two phases to my career so far. The first half was writing to console myself because I felt so lonely. And I wrote to express myself and just express my feelings and my inner state to friends and family and other people. But I also wanted to entertain because I'd read many novels and stories that both consoled and entertained me. So I wanted to replicate that. And then in the second phase where I'm writing about healing myself, I still want to entertain, but that's not my main goal. But it just comes out of it naturally. Like if I write writing that is clear and compelling and concise and that talks about my life honestly it will be entertaining i feel hmm. would you say that you still sometimes use writing as a coping for loneliness yeah yeah i think i do yeah writing and reading the part where i write to console myself more for loneliness has gone into poetry recently for me, writing poetry. But all the time that I'm writing about healing myself, it's also consoling myself because I'm learning so much about my life and my body and the reasons why I've been so introverted and so mentally messed up. Learning actual reasons why I was depressed through a lot of my life is consoling in part because it leads directly to actionable, actionable behavior that I can do to make myself less depressed. Hmm. Uh, would you say that fighting sadness or fighting depression, is that an ongoing thing? It's been an ongoing thing, actually, until I 
elim- eliminated vegetables, actually, <laughs> which sounds oh, crazy. That's interesting. But, but because my gut, I think my gut had been leaky throughout all my time eating vegetables that molecules and bacteria were constantly entering my bloodstream and entering my brain, making me feel unstable and nauseated and moody. So I'm really happy about this diet change. I feel much more stable now. And I don't feel myself combating depression anymore. No. So give me an example of something that you can eat on your current uh, diet that you're elated that, oh, I, you know, I love it that I get to tear my teeth into this. What is that? Eat beef. I eat a lot of beef. I eat all kinds of meat, actually chicken, pork, and animal organs like liver and kidney. And some people might think like this is cruel to animals, but I've never deviated from my one of my goals when I was a vegetarian, which was to reduce pain and suffering in the world. I've just learned more and more that actually if you buy your meat from regenerative farms, you're actually helping the world. You're even helping to sequester carbon into the soil and you're creating more fertile soil and you're making yourself healthier and and you yourself are part of the world. So you want to work on yourself first. And you're also connecting with millions of years of evolution. We all have ancestors, our shared cultural heritage beyond like Chinese or Norwegian is Aboriginal. Everyone used to be a native person and every native person ate a ton of meat. And it's the way that humans have been able to evolve and grow their brain size and live sustainably on the planet. So I feel good even in that way, Mm. eating more meat, that I'm helping the planet and myself, I think. Fascinating. Now, tell us maybe a few things that you think, if I went back to eating these things, it would just wreck my diet. Like, I would be just lighting this whole thing on fire and ruining it. What would those things be? Almonds. Turmeric, spinach, Swiss chard, cinnamon, probably cauliflower, broccoli, probably any vegetable. But as I heal my gut, if I heal my gut enough, I think in the future I will be able to add back in some foods. But healing the gut takes a long time. What about just like sugar, straight sugar? I don't know how I would do on that, but I think I would do better on straight sugar than on like almonds because straight sugar doesn't have anti-nutrients in it. Straight sugar that's 
organic. If it's non-organic straight sugar, it will have glyphosate in it, which will also damage my gut. But I think just straight sugar would be better than vegetables for me at this point. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. What would you say is the best thing about being Talman? The best thing is that that I have a strong meaning and purpose in life right now, which is working on my book. And this meaning and purpose is connected strongly to my my health. So when I'm working on the book, I'm also working on my health. And healing myself is more than just healing my body. It's healing my mind. And part of that is having strong relationships and feeling love with family and friends. And my pets, I have three cats. So everything feels connected for me right now. And every day feels charged with meaning, which makes me feel good. Meaning and purpose are just so, so, so crucial to happiness, to being a, a, a person who feels a reason to get up out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about this year ahead, 2023? How are you, uh, we never know what's going to happen, but what are your thoughts about the year ahead? Personally, I'm just going to keep working on my book. I've finished like 30% of it, of the book Self-Heal. And I'm gradually working on the other two books too. And in terms of the world, I hope that Elon keeps releasing Twitter files and that the mainstream media keeps getting less influence as they seem to have been getting over the years, like less readers and less people trusting them. So I'm feeling optimistic. Do you think that you are more optimistic than someone who reads the New York Times every day? Yes, I think so. I feel like someone who reads the New York Times every day feels resentful and afraid. Like they get the number of COVID deaths every day, like at the top of the page. And then sometimes there will be some new virus that they'll have to be afraid of. And they'll also be constantly afraid of cancer and other diseases with no solution because mainstream medicine views almost every major chronic disorder as having no cure and also no known cause. And then the resentment comes in because it seems like the New York Times main solution to the world's problems is to just get rid of all everyone that doesn't agree with them mm. especially the opposing political party and these things fear resentment are very bad for your health 
and and then there's other things people have to be afraid of if they read the new york times like climate change so i do feel more optimistic than someone who reads the new york times yes <laughs> the world seems if you get information outside the mainstream the world seems more in some ways it seems more terrible but in other ways it seems more hopeful and it's less confusing things make sense more i think even though they come out to be more complicated things start to make sense you know tell i get a lot of emails from people that i can feel a, a sense of anxiety just reading it i get an idea this this person is worried they're anxious or they are consuming a lot of news and things are bothering them they can't sleep at night any number of problems that crops up what would you say is the best way for someone to not be worried so much aside from not reading the new york times <laughs> yeah that's one way <laughs> another way would be to just focus on working on their health naturally working on their diet getting more exercise and sunlight and better sleep and then i would also recommend reading certain books that are hopeful that are hopeful in a way based on science and research like the chalice and the blade by rian eisler is the book from which i learned that humans used to be peaceful reading this book can reduce your anxiety and also reading say that other book i mentioned the big bang never happened reading that book can increase your awe and wonder in the universe in a way that's based on research and science and then other books there's books on health i would recommend nourishing traditions this cookbook based on knowledge from our ancestors yeah reading non-fiction books and working on your health and not reading newspapers could help with anxiety i think i always like to end the interview i just give the guest the stage just i mean it's a totally open-ended question we never know who's watching who's listening where they are what would you say in closing here at the end of this broadcast i feel like you've already given me the stage i've said so much i like your interviewing style but maybe i could end by talking about this theory called infinite universe theory okay it's, it's written about by this geologist glenn borkard and he theorizes that the universe is infinite in all directions like if you keep going up into stars and galaxies that there will be no end like there will just be bigger and bigger structures and similarly if you keep going down into 
grains of sand and atoms. You'll be able to keep going down infinitely. And Glenn, Glenn Borkert is another person who criticizes Einstein a lot because another effect of Einstein's theories is that his theories say that the smallest things are atoms and that there's nothing under that. It's just a vacuum, which is kind of a bleak way to view things. And it's not based on the evidence, according to Glenn Borkert and others. The evidence shows that there are smaller particles called ether particles that everyone before Einstein believed in the ether, that there were these invisibly tiny particles everywhere and possibly even smaller particles below that. So this is just a good way to increase wonder in yourself because the universe seems way more complex than we've been taught. That is a great place to end. Well, Tao Lin, thank you for this very compelling conversation. It's been very interesting. Yeah, thank you for talking to me. I've loved talking to you. It's been fun. I wish you an infinitely wonderful 2023 and infinite beyond. Thank you. Me too. I wish you an infinitely good 2023, the rest of your life, and everything that happens after you die. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's that. I'll, I'll take that. Absolutely. I hope we get to meet in person someday, maybe. That would be cool. All right. Well, Tao Lin, it's an honor. The first guest of 2023. Thank you. You know, the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people like you. Listeners, viewers, please go to thepaulleslie.com slash support, and you'll know what to do when you're there. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who contributes. Performance of The Entertainer intro song by John Primerano. And, of course, this is your announcer speaking. See you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.